Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. So welcome back to another episode of Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri country. And we're broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Shahrazad Blue. So in light of what people, in particular Indigenous and First Nations peoples, have called a failure at COP26 for leaders to do anything substantial about climate change and in fact extend greenwashing and smoke screening the resource pillaging of our planet for profit, today's episode will focus on conversations on the effects of climate change. So firstly, we'll hear from Pacific Climate Warriors Coordinator Fulole Asuao Sagale Tupola, who spoke with 3CR's Thursday breakfast before heading to Glasgow. We then hear from Professor Helen Berry, who is an expert in climate change and mental health. And now we'll bring you part of a conversation that happened earlier in October that Rosie from 3CR's Thursday Breakfast program had with Folele, daughter of Moana. Folele is a storyteller and artist settled on Watheron country and here talks about the Youth for Pacific Declaration on Climate Change that was delivered to Pacific leaders at the COP26. So this interview appeared before the conference, so just bear that in mind when you're listening to it. So COP26, um, for those who don't know, the Conference of Parties 26, which is this global summit on climate change. Uh, Could you just speak a little bit about both the significance of this summit, um, but also the importance of amplifying Indigenous voices in summits like this and also just in climate activism more broadly? Mm Uh, Definitely. So as a Pacific region, uh, us peoples have continued to show up together, uh, displaying true representation and solidarity as Pacific peoples who uh, in climate change spaces are silenced and greatly ignored around global negotiations on climate change. And, you know, when we look at our brothers and sisters from the Marshall Islands, they were the ones who pushed so hard and they led the call to action on the 1.5 Paris Agreement. Um, and our youth elder and Samoan sister, Brianna Frulin, who has been showing up in cop spaces with a red flower, or uh, we, I guess in Polynesian terms we call it a say, Um, at such a young age and for her to do so in resistance and defiance of Pacific invisibility and to stand in pride of her cultural roots. And so that has inspired the Pacific Climate Warriors campaigns um, for COP uh, called the Have Your Say back in 2017. Uh, COP uh, is a very complex 
uh, as like COP and G20, is a very complex and very draining and frustrating space for Pacific peoples mm-hmm. and Indigenous peoples. Uh, we keep thriving, but we keep thriving and demanding year by year that for the world to truly solve climate change, they must step back and listen, and that climate change is Indigenous leadership and is Indigenous justice. And it's so crucial to stand in solidarity, um, such as, you know, our deadly sister and First Nations activist, uh, Millie Telford from Seed Mob, uh, uh, to, you know, the traditional owners of the Wangan and Jangalungu uh, mob, Cody, uh, who are uh, fighting against the illegal Dan coal mine, and out to, you know, the Torres Strait Islander Yessi, who is one of the many Torres Strait 8 complainants who have sent a case against the Australian government to the UN, and most importantly, the Free West Papua movement. And so, you know, right now we are really at a major tipping point and it's really now uh, for Indigenous voices and especially young people to be leading. The recent IPCC report uh, was really not a surprise for the Pacific because we have been addressing this uh, to global leaders and to the world time and time again. And, you know, we have really been demanding real climate actions. And so COP is so important, so important for there to be a global shift for accountability and uh, for all Pacific and Indigenous people to be listened to on climate change. Talking, I guess, just a bit briefly about uh, that narrative of victimisation that seems to always be put over Pacific uh, really undermines the extreme hard work that Pacific peoples on mm. the front lines are leading in combating uh, uh, this issue. And so it's very toxic for global leaders to keep painting us with the same brush for their own narrative. Mm. And, um, you know, with the Morrison government um, committed uh, to taking up to COP26, um, what they are addressing over there is a complete disappointment. Their delivery is yet again filled with, you know, misleading information, language, greenwashing, um, ignoring, you know, the scientific evidence and also ignoring uh, the call for action and the solutions from the Pacific. When ScoMo attends COP, he and each and every one of these Australian delegates must listen to the Youthful Pacific Declaration um, that will be delivered and as well as the Pacific delegates there in Glasgow um, to listen to the seven demands on climate change from the Pacific and Pacific diaspora young peoples. You know, those demands cover the push for youth leadership um, and a real engagement of youth on climate change. And together with all global leaders, uh, we are calling for an immediate curb on carbon emissions by at least half by 2030 uh, through, you know, a very just and urgent transition from uh, fossil fuels to renewable energy. And to recognise that traditional environmental knowledge is so important and so needed to wove in designing ocean policies. Um, and there is great financial transparency with the Santiago network and ensuring that, you know, there is grant distribution, not this apathetic loan mm. uh, that seems to 
be uh, put out uh, <laughs> to the Pacific, um, which is really uh, not allowing uh, you know these grads to be going to these uh, community-led um, programs, and as well as adjust people's recovery, which ends fossil fuel financing and shifting away from, you know, this really extractive economies uh, to a more constructive um, where it recognized uh, by, you know, the Pacific cultures. And so really it's amplifying the call for action. And I want to see real commitment on climate leadership, on really transitioning from global extractive economies to a a local living economy that is really all connected and rooted on shared values of dignity and solidarity and 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 respect. And that was Pacific Climate Warriors Coordinator for so-called Victoria in Australia, Folele Asua Sagale Tupola. And we'll have a link to that whole interview on our website. So now we'll hear from Professor Helen Berry, who is an expert in climate change and mental health. Helen is an honorary professor at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation at Macquarie University. She is a widely cited psychiatric epidemiologist and expert in how climate change disasters and social and physical place influence mental health and well-being. So you you actually recently published a piece in the OECD blog titled What Does Climate Change Have to Do with Mental Health and Young People? And before we get to young people, can you just tell us what is the link between climate change and mental health more broadly? Sure. One of the things I find most interesting about this and about mental health generally is the complexity of the links. So it's not a straightforward thing. Mental health comes from a whole lot of different factors that all interact, some of them in pernicious ways and some of them in good ways, to give us what we experience as our mental health any day of the week. And climate change makes that a whole lot more complex because climate change itself is very complex. So I think the the really important things to try and understand about mental health is where it comes from. If we just look at mental illness and psychiatric diagnoses, all we're ever going to be doing is mopping up instead of never turning off the tap, ever turning off the tap. Researchers and practitioners and people in general tend to focus on the symptoms and try and do something about that. And they end up doing things like recommending more types of treatment or more drugs or training more psychiatrists or mental health nurses and so on. And all of that's very valuable and very much needed. We definitely need better treatments. We definitely need more mental health care professionals of all sorts of different kinds. And But what we don't do nearly enough of, often what we don't do any of at all, is trying to understand where mental health, good and bad, comes from. And it's only really if we if we start to try and do that that we can understand what causes our mental health, good or bad, and do things further up the causal chain that will stop those negative outcomes and promote the good ones. And so that's what I'm really interested in. And and perhaps here you could tell us a little bit more about how or what are the effects of climate change um, on the mental health of young people? Well, perhaps if I talk about how climate change actually does affect mental health. So if we start at the 
the end of the causal process, if you like, when the floodwaters come all the way down the mountain and landed on someone. So the immediate relationship between climate change and mental health is two things. One is that the issue of climate change is getting really, really bad. Almost everybody understands the climate is changing across the globe and mostly in really bad ways. And that is a scary thing. So people are starting to worry a lot more about climate change now and sometimes getting quite anxious and even depressed about it. So that's one way in which climate change is affecting mental health directly through people worrying about it and sometimes worrying a lot about it. The other way is that, that, we, that we very easily see is that it's affecting the kind of weather we get and again, mostly in negative ways. So it's creating more frequent and more long-lasting and more intense weather-related disasters like droughts and storms and cyclones and floods and bushfires and so on that we're familiar with. And when people are exposed to those kinds of things, either directly, so their home is destroyed in a bushfire or they're exposed to drought over a number of years and they're Indigenous people living close to the land or farmers living off the land and so on, then those, those kinds of events affect people's mental health very directly. Interestingly, they seem to differ in their effects between what we call acute disasters like floods and fires and chronic disasters like droughts and salination of land. And the acute disasters seem to be more related to post-traumatic stress disorders and other anxiety and stress disorders whereas slow things like drought seem to be more closely related to depression. So it seems like the kind of disaster that you're living with affects the kind of mental health outcome you may have. And, of course, you may be living with both of those. So they're the obvious ways that, that people are, are harmed, they get caught up in disasters. Going a little bit further up the causal chain, these disasters can also cause damage to things that matter for mental health. So, for example, they can, they can damage infrastructure, like they can damage roads and bridges or stop trains running. They can bring down power lines or telecommunications towers or things like that. So the things that we rely on to go about our normal business or especially the things we rely on to keep in touch with one another. When people are caught up in, in disasters, if they end up having to move out of their own homes, even for a short period of time, that's very damaging for mental health. And if we keep going further up the causal chain, then these climate-related disasters, if, they, if they're bad enough within a single community, they can damage the economic circumstances of a whole area or a town and when that happens, that causes problems with social capital in communities because people start leaving those communities if they're too badly damaged or they die. And very often, the people who leave first are those who are most able to leave. So they tend to be those who are fittest or who have the most financial resources or who have very good networks elsewhere that can help them. And they leave behind those with fewer resources. So those who are left behind have even fewer resources to go to share about amongst them. And all of these factors affect mental health. We can also find that weather-related disasters damage our natural environment. So sometimes people uh, just feel a great sadness at seeing their beautiful land around them destroyed. 
um, that's uh, often called solastalgia or the kind of homesickness that we feel for countryside or land that's been damaged. So there are lots and lots of these indirect ways that climate change affects mental health directly and then also indirectly. There's a very important indirect effect that I focus on quite a lot in my work, and that's at the political level. And people are very sensitive to what's going on at the political level, even if they don't directly follow politics or take any real interest in current affairs. They still absorb what things are like. So I don't know whether you know, but in countries that have right-leaning governments, suicide rates are higher than in countries with left-leaning governments, and the same goes for states. And people have wondered why that is, and, um, and authors of the study have suggested, and I agree, or I would go further, that it's something about the nature of the, the implicit message that right-wing governments send. And what I think it is is that right-wing governments send the message that it's all about the individual and I'm okay, and if you're not okay, that's somehow your fault. Whereas left-leaning politics are more about understanding groups and the collective and putting emphasis on making sure that the whole community is happy and that people aren't left behind. So when the world, when the people of the world can see the leaders of the world failing to act on climate change or failing to act strongly enough, that in its own right is deeply depressing and anxiety-provoking because we feel helpless in the face of, um, of these decisions being made so far above our own pay grades. And I think that that's a, a really important um, point that doesn't get made often enough. When people are thinking about climate change and mental health, they, they tend to think about what's immediately obvious and not what's going on behind the scenes. And I think this is where one of the areas in which this connects very strongly to how young people are experiencing climate change. And being young, they have, um, they have a number of perspectives that are different from older, older generations like my own. So one thing about being young is in being young, you have a whole lot more of your life ahead of you. And so you can see a whole lot more of your future affected by climate change. So for somebody in their 80s, they may, may well think and they say to me, you know, it's not really a big issue for me. I'll be dead before all of this happens. Whereas for young people, they're looking at 60, maybe even 70 years in which they're going to have to live in this climate changed world, somehow survive in it. So I think that's one reason that it's more of an issue for young people. And for very young people, those under the age of 25, particularly children and those in early adolescence, then um, they're not yet, their brains are not yet fully mature. So for children and, and, and young adolescents in particular, it can be very difficult for them cognitively to work out what's happening. And all of that means that you have less that you can rely on to deal with thoughts and feelings about climate change and also what it's actually doing to our physical environment. I think there's a common thread in, in, what, you were, in what you were saying and what um, a lot of uh, young activists say, um, which is to do with the more structural issues causing climate change on, on one hand, but also causing this, as you mentioned, these kind of individualising politics 
leading to poor mental health. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about these broader structural issues. Climate change is more damaging to people who belong to categories that are excluded or disadvantaged in society more than it affects other people. So everybody will be affected by climate change. Everybody already is being affected by it. There's no escaping it. So to the extent that you belong to disadvantaged categories, um, you will be more and more hard hit by climate change relative to somebody who isn't. So if you think about the lives of people who don't have homes to go to and who um, have to couch surf or live in their cars or even live on the streets, and you think about what it must be like to deal with a heat wave or a flood in that situation compared to being um, very wealthy, you can start to imagine the different ways that climate change differentially affects people. And it differentially affects younger people more than more than, than older people, because by and large, younger people have fewer resources than they than they will have when they're when they're older and their careers and lives are more mature. So I think when we think about the effects of climate change on mental health and its relationship to disadvantage, then it's important to understand that it lands very heavily on a small minority of people by and large. So that doesn't mean it, it doesn't touch everybody's lives. Of course it does and it can, but by and large it affects the lives of that minority of people who are already living with the bulk of society's disadvantage. And the same is true globally and um, we just see it in an even bigger way in countries which as a whole are living with disadvantage. So if we look at even the poorest African countries, for example, we still see structural disadvantage and advantage. There's still a handful of wealthy industrialists or princes or whatever who who are very wealthy, even in these poorest of poor countries, and then a huge mass of people who have almost nothing. Even in those countries, there's a structure to disadvantage. And wherever wherever you find disadvantage, then you'll find the effects of climate change hitting much harder. And because of that, you also find mental health more severely and more extremely damaged. Mental health in society is very patterned, just like disadvantage. The bulk of mental health problems and the worst mental health problems are found amongst the disadvantaged group, that group in society who who has all the disadvantage, which has all the disadvantages, where you find disadvantage is where you find most of the mental health problems. We know that the global pandemic has exposed sort of weaknesses in, in the ways our societies are structured and what's funded as well. The pandemic has exposed these yeah, fault lines fault, in society. Yeah, fault, yeah, but not only that, also sort of the inadequate funding of of mm. where it's needed most, so, you know, health mm. in particular. Uh, I think we've seen this as well in the sort of governmental responses to um, the, the mental health eth- effects of, of the pandemic where they're like, mm. oh, okay, we'll just fund some extra, you know, individual one-on-one psychology, yet they're, they're still spending this ridiculous amount on policing and surveillance and not uh, not yeah. a similar amount on on health and education. I think this is mm. a good example of how then mental health is utilised and individualised and saying, oh, look, we're, we're going to deal with this, but actually we're just doing this on this, again, this more individual, neoliberal 
in mm. sense rather than looking at the structural problems. You know. Yeah, definitely. During the pandemic, we've seen the fault lines in society split open and laid bare for everyone to see. The, it hasn't been possible to hide. Um, and if we think particularly in Sydney, for example, the way that the, um, the Liberal government there split Sydney into the, the wealthy East and the poor West and how differently it treated the people living in those two different areas and how hard it was on those already living with disadvantage, compounding their disadvantage and making it so much worse. And we've seen how governments respond to that and we already know, and it's very well documented around the world, not just in Australia, that um, health funding is inadequate and mental health funding is hugely inadequate. And the resources applied to mental health are, are far short of what's needed. And the resources that are applied to mental health often don't, don't necessarily address the underlying issues. So they tend to be very individually focused and not focused on addressing the structural problems that underpin um, mental health problems emerging and where they emerge in society. And the pandemic has split that wide open. And again, we've seen the same kind of responses from, um, from governments that they'll fund more individual mental health sessions and, and provide more, more hours of counselling and so on, when we already know that most mental health problems arise from structurally caused issues in the first place. So they arise from unemployment or poor living conditions or uh, gender inequality or um, all these sorts of things that are patterned in society. And they're just not uh, the underlying patterning, the underlying structural causes of disadvantage and the mental health problems that go with disadvantage are not addressed. And just as they're not being addressed in the pandemic, they're not addressed in relation to climate change. But the good thing that's come out of the pandemic is that we've seen that the world can mobilise to address a major threat to society. We, we know that even though it's been done very unevenly and, and, and with lots of mistakes and inadequately in many if not most places in the world, we have nevertheless seen that politicians and governments can mobilise and they can put money in where it's needed to address what they consider to be an urgent and significant threat. So if they did ever decide to address climate change or mental health or both of them, we know that they could and that provides an extra lever now. It's not possible for governments to say that they can't do this sort of thing anymore because they've demonstrated around the globe that they can and they will and they have when they consider it necessary. A lot of communities started getting together and doing more sort of community-based work such as um, collective farms. There's different talk on food sovereignty and different types of sovereignties to sort of deal with not only climate change but um, the inequalities that people face under capitalism. You mentioned uh, before in our previous chats uh, that there were some tips that uh, you 
wanted to share with our listeners? More options for taking action, I think, than than tips exactly. But um, what I was just talking about is one of them. So taking collective action, and you've come up with some other really great examples where people are engaging in food cooperatives or farming cooperatives, or if they're in cities, they've got a, a shared veggie garden, a community garden where they can grow veggies together. And doing those sorts of things are so important. And I think one of the most important things that we can do individually and as a, a group amongst friends or like-minded um, people taking similar action is to remind each other that um, we're not going mad in worrying about climate change. We're not imagining something that isn't happening and we're not stuck in a situation that we can't do something about If we try to act as individuals on our own, then we probably are stuck in a situation we can't do something about. But if we join together in groups, we certainly can. And we only have to make a small contribution each for it to make a very big difference. So people should be kind on themselves is my main message, um, really about what people can do and inform themselves, of course, get mental health support. uh, If they need it, of course, do all of those things as an individual. Um, But also remember that we're not going mad. This is really happening. We're not imagining things and that there are things that we can do. And even if at the moment there's pretty much nothing we can do, to be kind on ourselves and understand that if that's our circumstance right now, then that's the reality we're living with. And if we can't do anything, then we can't do anything and we shouldn't be feeling bad about that or being made to feel bad about that. If we can do something, it might be something really, really small like um, participating in a community garden or carpooling one day a month or something very small. And that's, that's great. That's plenty. And um, if we can do more, great. And the more that we can do that puts us in, in touch with others in a positive way, doing activities we enjoy, being with like-minded others, um, that's really great for mental health. And number one thing that's great for mental health is social connectedness. So to the extent that we can make that part of whatever we do, then then we're acting really smart. And being kind to ourselves and doing whatever we can do and taking care of our social connectedness the best we possibly can um, is really all that we need to do as individuals and taking part in collective action on a bigger scale if we can and if we're willing to do that. So I think it's really important to understand that collective action, whether it's in little groups or great huge groups like the School Strike for Climate, are much more doable and much more feasible for people to to do. And that in meeting other like-minded individuals when they're taking action, they can also get some social support and social connectedness along the way, which is so very protective for mental health. And that was Professor Helen Berry, who is an expert in climate change and mental health. And we'll have the links to her recently published articles on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining in. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program. So please send us an email to women on the line at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter 
or on your favorite podcasting app. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program broadcast from 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We receive funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And the theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. All our programs can be downloaded from 3cr.org.au forward slash Women on the Line. I'm Shahrazad Blu, and tune in to Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station.